If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. How did prehistoric people in Britain view and understand the world around them? What did they smell, hear and see? Francis Pryor is one of Britain's leading archaeologists and a familiar face from TV series such as Time Team. Following the publication of Francis's new book, Scenes from Prehistoric Life, our content director, Dave Musgrove, caught up with him to talk all about the prehistoric mindset. So, Francis, um, welcome, welcome to the podcast. Your new book, Scenes from Prehistoric Life, From the Ice Age to the Coming of the Romans, has just been published. It's a great book. Um, So congratulations on that. And thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. First up, how are you? I'm very well, actually, Dave. Yes, uh, feeling remarkably relaxed. Good, good stuff. So, as I said, it's a really uh, interesting book uh, covering a very big topic, a lot of time, uh, loads of detail and colour and loads of stories covered. And obviously we can't uh, hope to to cover all the riches that you talk about. Um, But what I was hoping to do in the course of this conversation is to focus in a bit on on a few topics that, uh, that I think are interesting, trying to understand maybe a little bit about how prehistoric people might have viewed the world that they uh, existed in. And when I say prehistoric, obviously that's a very big term to use, and uh, I'm going to sort of invite you to pick uh, moments from, from the topic when I ask you the questions. But firstly, I think before we jump into it, what we need to do is just define prehistory for our listeners. Um, would you be able to give us a very top-level summation of what we mean by prehistory and, and the various periods within it? Right. Well, in a nutshell, prehistory means pre-before history, and history is written history. Um, So, basically, you're talking about uh, people who lived before the introduction of writing. And in Britain, that happened with the arrival of the Romans in AD 43. Um, So, prehistory is essentially everything that happened in Britain before 
the life of Christ is probably the simplest way of looking at it. And um, it's divided up into three broad periods. The oldest, which goes from about a million years ago, is the Stone Age. And then that continues um, through the Ice Age um, into post-Ice Age times when you get the uh, Middle and the uh, new Stone Ages. So in the Ice Age and earlier, it's um, the Old Stone Age. And then you get the Bronze Age, and that starts around 2500 BC. And that continues until about 750 BC when you have the Iron Age. And um, so there your three ages the ages of stone, bronze, and iron. And bronze is a mixture of copper and tin, and iron is just the metal iron. So basically, what those three ages are telling us is how technology changed. So in the Stone Age, you're bashing stone. You're not using much heat. And then in uh, the Bronze Age, you're starting to melt metal and make pottery and that sort of thing. And uh, so that requires the manipulation of heat. And so it's quite a jump in technology. And when you get to the Iron Age, it requires a lot of heat. And uh, so that really is quite a big step in, in technological development. Okay, thank you. So listeners, try and keep those uh, broad distinctions in your mind as we as we go through this conversation. Um, now, now, Francis, you've, uh, you've had a very interesting career I think and it might be useful just to to ask you to summarize a few of the things you've done because you're much more than just a, uh, a practicing archaeologist you have uh, dug and, and, and done a lot of digging but you've done a few other interesting things as well and I guess uh, your activities help inform your view of, of, of the past um, so maybe you could just give us a very brief summation of, of your of your career your varied career and maybe yeah. gives a, a little taste of what you're trying to do with this book because you've written quite a few books on, on this topic yeah yes well I was uh, I I read archaeology at Cambridge because I'd always been very interested in the subject, um, and largely because um, when I was a, a schoolboy, I did geology and botany and uh, zoology, um, and I loved those subjects, but they lacked something, and what they lacked was people. And I really wanted, when I went to university, to do a subject that involved people. And um, archaeology was what came to mind, and I went on many digs and did that sort of thing. And then when I finished at university, um, I very nearly stopped being archaeologist, and uh, I was offered a, a job by uh, Brian Epstein, who was the manager of the Beatles, um, because I did a lot of... Uh, work for college balls at Cambridge and I, I, he offered me a job as a as a road manager and uh, like a madman I turned it down because he was offering me 50 pounds a week and I think if I was doing well on a dig I'd be getting a fiver a week but at any rate <laughs> I turned it down and uh, uh, started doing a bit of digging and then um I realized that I wasn't really getting anywhere. I thought I'd better do something new. So I went to Canada on an impulse and uh, uh, got a job at the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto for 10 years. And then I decided I'd come back to England and um, work on British sites. And then I did a lot of that. I was busily digging sites ahead of the development of Peterborough Newtown. And then, um, oh gosh, when was it? About 1980, I thought, I'm digging up sites of farms, prehistoric farms, Bronze and Iron Age farms. And I'm writing about how they manage their livestock and how they laid out their fields. And yet, I've got no real practical hands-on experience of what I'm digging up. Even though my family were farmers, you know, I, I didn't actually know what it was like to run a farm. So I bought some land, bought a, about 50 acres of land, slowly, over the, took a bit of 
doing, and built up a flock of a couple of hundred sheep. And I kept them for about 35 years. Um, so I had a sort of medium-sized sheep farm that was paid me two days a week. And so I was an archaeologist and a full-time, well, part-time sheep farmer. And that's when I started writing books. And I did 20 years of television with Time Team. So, you know, I've led quite a, quite a varied life. And uh, running through it all has been archaeology. <laughs> so, um, so you could have been a Beatles roadie, but weren't. But yeah. you have been a farmer. So, um, <laughs> so uh, would, would the Beatles, Beatles have been interested in archaeology? Do you think? That's interesting. Um, I doubt it. Although I don't know, they're very intelligent chaps. But, but uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and then, so, so this latest book. What's uh, what's what's your idea here? What, what story are you trying to tell? Well, the idea of uh, scenes from prehistoric life is to, I want to get inside the heads of people living in the prehistoric past. What were they thinking about when they visited Stonehenge, say? Or what were they thinking about when they built their houses, when they, when they milked their cows? Why were they doing these things? Because while I was being a farmer myself, I got a, a, a completely different slant on life because people would turn up, other farmers would turn up on the farm and we talk about livestock and livestock management and diseases that sheep get and all the rest of it. And we also talked about their families and you know how they live their lives. And I was given a totally different slant on life. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be good if I could actually discover more about the way prehistoric people would have lived their lives? You know, what a husband and wife would have talked about as they sat down to a a meal of marsh samphire or whatever it was they were eating, you know, and, and what would their food have tasted like? And, and what was the motivation that drove them to cook and to eat food and you know what was it like being a child in the iron age did did you go to school we don't think they did but so how did you learn your family's history and the history of your settlement and community and a lot of the sites that they constructed in prehistoric times were very elaborate um i mean you know stonehenge everybody knows is mathematically quite quite sophisticated so, you know, there was knowledge. People had knowledge. But how did they regard their knowledge? And this is something that, you know, we've got to think about quite carefully. Because one of the things that worries me about people's attitudes to the past is that people tend to patronize the past. They think they were simple. Whereas in reality, I think the breadth of their experience was a great deal wider than ours. I don't necessarily think that, you know, humanity has progressed hugely as we've moved forward in time. Um, you know, I sometimes think if some of the attitudes of some political leaders had been prevalent in the past, I know, would they have been, would they have thrived the way that some dictators and people have in the present day? You know, would Hitler have been possible in the Iron Age? Personally, I rather doubt it. Because I think, in some respects, they were more civilized than us. Okay, so um, uh, I mean, we might explore whether Hitler might have been possible in the Iron Age towards the end of the conversation. That's an interesting, very <laughs> interesting observation. Um, but, but um, what I want to do now is just throw you a bunch of questions, which are going to sound mm. a bit vague and airy fairy. I'm going to use the word, did, you know, did prehistoric people do stuff? Um, mm. Obviously, as discussed, prehistory is a very long period of time. So I'm going to ask you a question, then invite you to sort of pick moments and topics which might uh, helpfully answer the question so um my first question is um did prehistoric people appreciate a good view now that might sound a bit silly um but uh, i'm sort of referencing a point in your book where you talk about uh the goat's hole cave which you might want to tell us uh, a, a bit more about in your answer uh, mm. and and the sense of of that position in the landscape and how it looks out over over an area so so what do you mm. think did prehistoric people appreciate a good view Right. Um, the, the, the big problem with this is that our appreciation of views 
is of their, their beauty. And it's their beauty as we have been taught to appreciate it by people like Wordsworth and, uh, you know, the, 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 the people who's, who sung the praises of the Lake District in the late 18th and early 19th century. That, that concept of beauty, of landscape, is relatively recent. I mean, the word landscape didn't exist in the English language until I think it was about the 17th century when it was introduced from uh, Holland. Um, and the, the set-piece view that you look at for its own sake, well, of course, that's rubbish. You don't look at it for its own sake. You look at it because of what it does to you. And um, prehistoric people would have regarded the landscape in a very, very different way to the way we do. Um, for example, distant hills, that sort of thing, wouldn't just be seen as a beautiful range of hills in the distance. That would have been the edges of the realm of the ancestors. That's where, you know, dead people probably went to um, when they ceased this life. Um, people had an idea that parts of the landscape were bridges to other realms. Water in particular, um, the sort of sites that I dig in the fens, people make offerings to. Thousands of spears, daggers, shields, all sorts of things were carefully placed in the water. Because once the, the dagger had been placed in the water, it passed from the land of the living to the land of the dead, because you go below water and you drown. But you look at water and you can see your own reflection. So it's a mirror of the soul. There's a, a, archaeologists use a word um, to describe this, which is, uh, well, it, it's numinous um, and, and it's liminal. Numinous means it, it's, it's uh, of the other, other world, and liminal means it's on the boundary. Um, from the Latin word limen, meaning a boundary. And some sites are liminal. They're on the boundary between the world of the ancestors and ours, like the Goat's Hole Cave in um, South Wales, in Paviland, um, which is a cave which has, on the edge of what would have been a huge plain, but it's now the sea. Um, and in that cave, there was a burial um, of uh, a, a body which had been... Uh, surrounded and covered in red ochre, red red dust, red paint. And it was always assumed when it was first dug that it was a lady and that she was probably a prostitute because red is for prostitution. But um, uh, when the bones were looked at professionally by scientists, they turned out to be males. So that blew that theory apart. Um, but basically, it was a ceremonial burial thousands of years ago in a place which was on the edge of the known, experienced world. And um, caves often were treated like this. They were very special places. And um, so a view to a prehistoric person would mean far more in some respects, I think, than a pretty view as we'd see it. So that's, uh, that's a really interesting answer. Obviously, you're... Uh, you're theorising to, to a great extent here because we we simply we don't know, you know as you said in your uh, initial definition we don't know what prehistoric people thought they didn't we have no writings so how how concrete can you be in these answers when you, when you talk about um, uh, prehistoric people seeing a landscape as a landscape of the dead for instance what's, mm. what what is the evidence for for making those sorts of comments. The best evidence is the sighting of, for example, uh, Bronze Age burial mounds. They're often on along the line of the top of a hill. Uh, they're carefully positioned to be seen from roundabout, and they you see them sticking up as humps. Um, uh, the the landscape of, of well, well, we'll get onto it later. At Stonehenge has got barrows all around the great stones, but separated well back from it most of them. Um, it, it's the positioning of these sites. Uh, the wet sites are particularly notable. They're often on um, uh, streams and rivers that 
probably form boundaries. Um, and rivers naturally form a boundary, a territorial boundary. So these sites would have been uh, areas where people of different ethnicities, perhaps, but more likely just different tribal traditions, would meet and um, yeah, converse in, 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 in special neutral places. And those special neutral places were later developed into large sort of uh, camp-like areas where people could get together and feast and build build uh, little halls and, and um, they're rather special sites. And uh, these these sites are never just at random. Everything is very carefully positioned, and that's why I think they they had structure to their view of the past and. Can I be certain of these things? No, of course I can't. But one of the great things about archaeology is it frees you up to use your imagination. And I do get slightly fed up with some academic approaches, which is, it's, it's all about analysis. It's all about building models and blah, 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 blah. No, it isn't. You know, if you're going to understand human culture, as James Joyce knew only too well, you must use your imagination. Now, uh, thinking about site and the way people saw things, one of the really interesting aspects to, to, to this story, I think, and what's something you talk about in the book a bit, is colour and, and how prehistoric people might have viewed colour and, and particularly sort of shiny things. What, what have you got to say about that? Yes, well, I mean, we have this, uh, I just mentioned it with the Red Lady of Paviland, um, you know, that the, the red ochre, is a, an important part of, of um, Stone Age rituals. Uh, colour uh, and shininess, um, I think a lot of these things are about reflection because we take certain things for granted. They're part of our lives. I mean, for example, we all know what we look like. Yeah. Every single person living today checks his face in the mirror three or four times a day, I should think. And if he's looking at his mobile phone, he's doing it more often. And, you know, you're, you're, you know yourself intimately. And you're, you're, you wouldn't have been able to do this in prehistory. People didn't have mirrors. Mirrors came along with glass. Um, the, the earliest mirrors turn up in the last few centuries B.C., and they're polished copper. Um, they're beautifully decorated. When you actually look at them, you don't get a clear reflection of yourself because it's the, the, the surface isn't as flat as you can get it with a machine. So it undulates, and you get quite a distorted picture of yourself. But people obviously desperately wanted to be able to see their reflection. And um, they're usually found um, associated with women, uh, and they're beautifully decorated on the non-reflecting side. Um, Britain is famous for various things. Um, very few major artistic movements um, originated in Britain. We're very much better at science. But English country gardens are one, and the other thing is Celtic art. And the Celtic art of the Iron Age uh, is best seen on, on mirrors and, and uh, certain types of pottery and things. But it was a very important artistic movement that had influence right across Europe. And, you know, you've got to try to get inside of the head of these people. You know, what was motivating them to create these remarkable objects? And they were clearly very moved and... Um, so, yes, I'm a great fan of, of mirrors. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And I went into the, the temple, as it probably was, um, but it was being constructed, and I was almost hit in the face by the strength of the smell. It actually pulled my skin and made my eyes water. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate 
isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. What about sort of colours as well? That's sort of how how prehistoric people might have seen colours. I mean, I, I'm I, I was reading something. This is a bit out of our period, actually, but um, mm. reading about a, a Viking uh, burial in Scandinavia, where uh, they, the, the excavators talked about the barrow itself being uh, created out of a kind of a bluey mud, and they kind of felt mm. that that might have been a significant aspect of, of the initial barrow creation. Do, do mm. can we can we say anything about how how people viewed? colours specifically in the past? Yes. Um, they had a subtle appreciation of colour. We know that from fabrics that have been found, um, some at Must Farm in the Fens, um, where the actual pattern in the fabric is very subtle um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's delicate, careful colouring. It wasn't all... You mustn't assume that people like garish colours I think they had a subtle appreciation of colour. Um, and uh, one of the best examples of unusual colour that was very important are some flints that were found at a site called Blick Mead near Stonehenge. And the uh, water in the spring that where these flints were found um, dyes the, has dyed the stones a, a screaming pink extraordinary colour. It's an, it's actually algae in the water that do the dying and they're living, they live in the water. Um, and this site became very important from a, you know, religious point of view uh, a long time ago, you know, going, going back 6,000 BC or thereabouts. So, you know, colour obviously did matter to people as did smell, you know. Actually, let's move on to smell and sound, yeah. if we can, sort of going around the senses a bit. Um, can, can you sort of get into the, the prehistoric sensory experience at all? Obviously, that, that smell and, and uh, sound don't really survive in archaeological context, but, but um, mm. what, what can you say about it? Uh, well, um, sound does survive in the archaeological context in as much as the musical instruments survive. Um, and... Um, uh, a, a close friend of mine who, who lives just across the fens from me uh, in March, um, he's a paleomusicologist and uh, he has made recreations of uh, Iron Age and Bronze Age musical instruments, which, you know, one always assumed were sort of played in a rather crude way, you know. But no, when, when Graham plays these things, that's beautifully subtle, absolutely wonderful. So the music, I think, could be extremely subtle. And you've got to think, you know, 
think of African tribal rhythms. Uh, again, they're amazingly subtle and difficult to do. And so I think that there's no reason on earth why Iron Age and Bronze Age music, and make no mistake, they would have sung and had music, uh, couldn't have been really remarkably sophisticated. Um, it just, unfortunately, it hasn't survived yet. I don't know. Um, and smell. Um, I had a, an extraordinary moment uh, a long time ago, um, uh, back as a, just sort of 2000 AD, I should add. Um, uh, we were digging a site uh, called Seahenge on the North Norfolk coast, which was a circle of uh, 55 timbers with an upside down oak tree in it. And that site was constructed in the year 2049 BC, between April and June. We know that because of the tree ring dates. And we made a film about this on Time Team. It was one of the first Time Team documentaries. And as part of making the documentary, uh, we did a recreation, a reconstruction, full-sized reconstruction of the timber circle. And it was a, a ring of 55 posts, uh, oak posts, all split, um, set edge on edge to make a solid wall with a very narrow entrance. And then in the middle was the upside-down oak tree, which had had its bark stripped off. Now, splitting the outside posts and removing the bark from the oak tree, I don't think was purely done uh, to, you know, to spin out the timber. Uh, I think it was done to release the smell of the tannic acid that is a part of oak. And when we made the reconstruction, I can remember uh, the, the, the team broke up to have a, a, a tea break and everyone was over at the, the, uh, at the cafe caravan getting their, their tea. And I went into the, the temple, as it probably was, um, but it was being constructed, and I was almost hit in the face by the strength of the smell. It actually pulled my skin and made my eyes water. Now, I'm sorry, but if you're having someone, probably some your father or your mother, laid in the roots of this upside-down tree, and at the same time, that's their body, and at the same time, you're having this powerful smell of tannic acid, it's going to be an unbelievably uh, strong emotional moment. I, I don't see how anyone could come through that without without floods of tears. So, so you're imagining there are people deliberately employing uh, smell as a as a sensory experience to to achieve some sort of end. I mean, yeah, I mean, absolutely no doubt of it. Having done it, yes, no doubt. So what we what we really need now is the is the uh, smell of vision, isn't it? So get a sense of what. So what, so what, what does that smell like? Is it is it? Can you describe it? What's what's it like? Tannic acid. Uh, it's what's it like? It's it's like really strong vinegar soy sauce mix. It's it it it, it just pulls your face. It it's extraordinary smell. Makes your eyes water. It really is an extraordinary smell. I can't describe it. It's not like anything I've ever smelled before. Right. Well, it, sounds, it sounds it sounds very very powerful. It um, is. Just just um, so so that smell. Just going back to sound a bit. Um, you mm. talked about the instruments. I wonder. Um, prehistory uh, famous for for its architecture as much as anything else in terms of the the structures that survive stone circles um, and, and burial mounds and the like. Is there anything in sort of the architecture of those places that is uh, linked to sound? Do you think, I mean, a lot of people, well, a theory has been made that there was some something in Stonehenge in terms of the way it's set up to to hold sound or, or move sound around. Do you, do you have hold, hold a uh, uh, on that? Yes, uh, there's been, there has been work. And, and uh, yes, uh, undoubtedly in certain prehistoric sites. One of the most famous ones is the tomb uh, Mace Howe in Orkney, um, where the um, you know sound is amplified. Um, and uh, yes, I, I'm sure they manipulated these things. Absolutely sure of it. Uh, they, they, you know, these these were very able people, um, and uh, I, I, you know. 
I don't think it was ever simple. Um, that it's it's often said that um, you know these sites were intended to strike awe. They were, but awe is quite a complex emotion. Why do you feel a sense of awe? And um, I think if your sense of awe can be linked to personal connections, so, you know, you're thinking, my God, dear dad, who departed a week ago, is beyond that place, you know. That, 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 to me, that's more awe-inspiring in some respects than going to Westminster Abbey and seeing Poets' Corner. You know, it, it, it's personal awe. And one of the things about life in prehistory, I think, is that the family was so important. Um, I've written a book earlier on um, about sort of family life in prehistory, and it's something I feel very strongly about. Um, and I think it was women who played a major part in giving structure uh, to prehistoric life and 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 a feeling of of community, um, and I, we we've got to embrace the complexity of you know what it meant to be a human being in prehistory, and I think it was as complex as it is today, um, and you know as rewarding. Um, and, and just for our listeners, Mays House, yeah. uh, it's up in Orkney, it's a, a Neolithic yeah. site, um, part yeah. of a, a much broader Neolithic landscape. We might we yeah. might come back to that as, as we uh, if we've got time to, but an amazing amazing place yes. to uh, to visit. Just just um, picking up on what you were just talking about there in terms of family. Um, one of the other really interesting things I took from your book is uh, is your observations on prehistoric attitudes to time. And I guess that links into family in terms of ancestors. Um, you cite a, a really interesting example of a prehistoric site in Scotland uh, called Tomnaveri. I hope I'm pronouncing that right, um, which seems to have been planned and developed over the course of millennia, which is clearly a very long time. Um, what does that tell us about um about prehistoric attitudes to time, to planning, to, to to looking at the long durée, I guess. And how do we know it was planned over millennia? Actually, might be a, a good place to start. Uh, well, we know that it was planned over millennia because we can actually date the phasing of the various sites in the area and how they changed. And you can do that with radiocarbon dating. So, you know, you can do it accurately. So we're in no doubt about that. Um, the uh, what fascinates me about time in prehistory and indeed in time in 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 early history is the way it was regarded um, today and for you know the last three four hundred years we regard time in terms of hours minutes seconds weeks months years. And they're all numbered. Uh, time is, you know, something which passes and is finished. It's gone. Um, it's successive, and there is no sense of time ever repeating itself. Um, in prehistory, I think, in fact, there's evidence to back this up, that people's attitudes to time were far more cyclical, circular, just as they are still today in rural areas. Um, so one of the things I learned when uh, I started being a, a full-time sheep farmer um, was that when you were talking to other farmers during lambing, say, you'd go round and probably hadn't been to bed for 12 hours and you go around to, to see a neighbor and you'd be talking about the lambing and uh we'd i'd find uh but sometimes my neighbors who, who you know were sometimes quite elderly people would be talking about problems they had lambing back in the 1950s as if they were yesterday each lambing season has its own characteristics which are often revisited year after year. So, you know, in some years, you're, 
you're having a lot of retained afterbirth and that sort of thing. But that's probably due to the condition of the grass and the state of the mineral content of the soil and so on. Uh, and these, these things come back. Um, and there's a sense of the, the cycle of the seasons. Spring gives way to summer, gives way to autumn, gives way to winter. And each year is slightly different, but it's also slightly similar. It's linked by these similarities. And in prehistory, it was the cycle of the seasons that lay behind a lot of their religious thinking. Um, uh, it's not for nothing that the Henges are circular and... Um, you know, the emphasis is on circularity. Iron Age houses are circular, and they're very often built in the same way with the doorway facing southeast, so over, you know, rising sun, and um, a central fireplace and hearth, and then people ate and prepared food on the south side of the hearth, the head of the family or the most important person had his or her chair facing the doorway. And then on the north side of the fireplace was the side where you slept. And that's incidentally when you do have burials, as sometimes you have child burials and that sort of thing in these houses, they're always on the north side, at least nearly always. So what what the layout of those buildings is reflecting is the passage of the hours during the day. So you have a very complex view of the world with the cyclical seasons and the passage of time in a circular way. And I don't think they would have thought in a linear way the way we do. So that's, that's fascinating. You're, Amy, obviously, you're absolutely right to identify the, the circularity of a lot of uh, the structures, but they're, they're not exclusively circular. I mean, there are uh, long barrows, uh, which, are, mm -hmm. which will break that mould, and they have mm -hmm. been interpreted to be a, a slightly different um, a different vibe, haven't they, in terms of uh, reflecting, um, well, you're going to be able to explain this better than me, in terms of, uh, uh, sort of uh, farmers coming in and, and having a more communal attitude to, to the past, if I, if I remember my archaeology correctly. Mm. Um, actually, that, that brings on an interesting point. I wonder whether you see anything different in terms of the perception of self and you talked about how people looked at mirrors and sort of trying to understand uh, their visage but is there is there a sense that there was a different perception of the individual versus the community in prehistory and was it more more focused on community and and, and the long story of, of protecting a sort of a, a, a lineage perhaps rather than our more into our certainly our western western european mm. more individualistic approach Yes, that's a, that's a very good point. Um, I think it, I think the community did matter more, and I, but I think this also applied in the Middle Ages. Um, you know, if, if, if you see, look at look at the illustrations in the lateral psalter and, and some of the extraordinary uh, medieval illustrations of village life, um, I, I think that the community was 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 very important. I think we get a, a very good idea of the relationship of the individual to the community if you examine burials in long barrows. So now, long barrows were built uh, just after 4000 BC uh, by the earliest farmers, Neolithic people. And these are mounds of earth with a, a central chamber and bones are very often placed in side chambers off the central chamber or passage. And um, when people started, modern archaeologists started examining and excavating long barrows, they found these burials, at least very often they were uh, collections of bones, and when they examined them closely, what they found was not complete skeletons with everything present as you'd expect if you laid someone to rest, as we would do. What they found were, yes, skeletons, but very partial, missing all sorts of bits and pieces, you know, toe bones, leg bones, whatever, you name it, they were missing it. And the more they examined it, the, the clearer it became that these bodies were actually taken out into the community and maybe 
circulated through henges and important places. I don't know. None of us know. Um, maybe back to the houses where they came from. Um, and quite often, you know, the actual bodies weren't treated as being particularly important because bits of bones were missing. It was what the bones represented. It was John Smith that was important. And, you know, if, if when you returned John Smith to the barrow, he was missing his big toe, too bad, you know, it, it didn't really worry you. But what it's telling us is that these ancestors were important to the community more so than a family because they're buried in a communal grave and yet at regular intervals they were taken out back into the community and i think they played an important part in providing social stability and cement that held a community together I guess, as you said, these uh, these long barrows tend to date from the from the earlier Neolithic period. So that's when farming is becoming established. I guess you need um, fairly strong communities to allow for for effective farming. That sort of brings me on to uh, another point, which is one of the, the biggest fracture points in prehistory is the transition between the Mesolithic and the Neolithic, the Middle Stone Age and the New Stone Age, hunter gathering to farming or at least that's how it's kind of you know it, that's, it's supposed to be a stark division and uh, and that's the archaeological nomenclature is that um was it a stark division and what do you think it meant in terms of sort of the site what was it a different psyche between your hunter gatherers and your farmers or did they sort of just sort of knock along quite well together very good question um my own feeling i mean if you'd asked me this question 30, 40 years ago, I'd have said there was a sharp split, very sharp split, uh, and that um, you know hunter-gatherers were far more mobile than farmers who settled down, and uh, you know it was a very big change, um, partly introduced by people coming in from the from the continent who brought with them the idea of farming itself. But uh, since then, my attitudes have changed, uh, partly through a lot of my own work, actually, my own team's work. And one of the things we found when we were digging in Peterborough um, is that uh, the landscape uh, remained substantially structured in the same way for at least 4,000 years. And there were indications that that original structure probably went back a long time, a long way, um, in, back into uh, Mesolithic, into hunter-gatherer times. Um, for example, you know, most of the islands in the Fens, and these are the, the drier bits of land that would have been islands before drainage, the Mesolithic, the, 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 the hunter-gatherer uh, flint flakes are always found, almost without exception, in the same places as Neolithic flakes for, for farmers. Uh, and we know that the arrival of farmers didn't represent a complete population change. It was only a part of the population, probably, I don't know, estimates keep varying, but maybe a third of the population came into the country from outside. So uh, I don't think that the, 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 the distinction between hunter-gatherers and farmers was quite as big as we were taught when I was a student. Um, for example, I mean, we know that dogs were domesticated. Um, dogs were domesticated by at least... Um, 8,500, maybe even 9,000 BC. We know that for a fact. Um, and if you can domesticate a dog, well, it's not a huge leap to, to, to domesticate other things. Uh, there's some evidence that hazelnuts, for example, were, it could well have been uh, planted around the edge of woods. And they have to be managed in a very different way. Uh, hazel has, uh, if you're going to extract, if you're going to use them as a source of nuts as opposed to a source of wattle work for building hurdles and building walls of your houses. Those bushes have to be cut to the ground and you don't get nuts if you coppice a hazel. Um, so, you know, I think people 
did understand managing the landscape much more than we give them credit for in the hunter-gatherer period. And uh, we know for a fact that they were coppicing um, because we found evidence for it at to sites like Star Car from 8,000 BC. Um, and I, my own feeling is that the, the country was starting to be divided up at the end of the Ice Age, and then it got increasingly partitioned. And you, we always think of uh, you know, uh, migrant hunter-gatherers, that the, the Mesolithic hunter-gatherers uh, were itinerant, that they they, does, they they wandered around at random. No, that's not the case. We know for a fact that they, many of them followed a fixed route where you, had, you were able to exploit different environments at different times of the year. And you didn't do it at random. You did, did it within your territory as so if you didn't conflict with other people. You avoided friction. And there's a lot of evidence for this. So that, um, you know, the, the, there wasn't a rapid switch from m migrants heading all over the place at random to settled farmers. It just didn't happen like that because people before the arrival of farming were living very structured lives in structured territories that everyone would have respected. So, so again, that kind of plays back into your, your your general idea about people having quite a long view on on the past. So you're seeing continuity there between those two groups, rather than a case of I'm a hunter gatherer, so I'm different to you. You're a farmer. That you, you don't see that that sharp divide. Um, I, I, I wonder. You just mentioned sort of travel and movement there, and, and how structured it might have been. Um, what what you can say about um, prehistoric people's attitude to travel and movement and whether they wanted to travel for travel's sake perhaps as, as you know that's quite a you know a modern concern isn't it people like to just go on holiday travel to places Did, is, is, was that a thing in prehistory did people just travel because travel is an interesting thing to do that's a very interesting point um there may have been an element of that i'm sure there was younger people are always going to want to travel around i think um, but uh, for a start, I think the most important thing is that travel took place far more often in Britain than we take, you know, than we think. Um, uh, there have been bodies discovered near Stonehenge, for example, where the, the dead person had actually spent their youth in the Alps. And we know that from the analysis of the enamel of their teeth and that sort of thing. Um, and we know from uh, the discovery of the boat at Dover, the Bronze Age boat at Dover, is about, I'm trying to remember, about 1500 BC or thereabouts, that um, that boat was perfectly capable of crossing the channel. It was a seagoing vessel. And we know about the remains of Bronze Age wrecks along the south coast because we found the Bronze Age cargoes lying on the seabed. I suspect that around 1500 BC, uh, there was probably ships crossing the channel every day, unless it was a real storm blowing. But, you know, most days there would have been several ships crossing the channel. So there was regular uh, toing and froing between Britain and the, and the mainland in Europe. Now, you, you, you get something similar inland um, in places like Stonehenge, for example, uh, people came there from a long, you know, quite a long way away. They, they, many links have been established now between places like Stonehenge. Well, the, the, the famous link with Stonehenge is with the um, uh, South Wales um, and, and the, the, the Blue Stones, um, which came from South Wales. And there's been a lot of research done recently by Mike Parker Pearson and his teams, um, which actually show that the stones used at Stonehenge probably came from, in fact, almost certainly, came from a, a burial mound uh, that was deliberately taken apart and taken to Stonehenge uh, to be used in the site there. And it was always thought, oh, well, you know, this would have been done the most cost-effective way cheap and easy way, in other words, put them on a boat and 
you know, take him down to, to, to Stonehenge uh, by sea. But no, no, they were probably taken over land. And, you know, had to be put on a boat at some point, but for the short distance, event over land, because the point of moving the stones was for people along the way to see them and to respect them. And it was part of the ritual of building the new site. And to go back to our earlier point about the hunter-gatherers and the Neolithic farmers, um, Stonehenge is the most famous Neolithic monument of them all, Neolithic and Bronze Age monument. And it's built on a landscape that had been very important to people for at least 4,000, 5,000 years before the stone started being erected. So it was part of a long-standing tradition, which is another reason why I don't think that there was a clean break at any point when the farm farmers arrived. They continued to respect paces that had been important religiously to people in uh, the Mesolithic times, right back to pretty well to the Ice Age. I mean, the some of the earliest evidence for a Stonehenge being important in very early times came um, when they excavated a trench near the heel stone, um, which is the stone that sort of guards the entrance to Stonehenge. And when this trench was first excavated, they didn't realize what they'd found. It was only um, Mike Parker Pearson's team going back to it later showed its two potential. And that this is a quite a wide trench. Um, and it had been dug down to the underlying chalky uh, limestone. And the stone at that point was traversed by a series of deep cracks, fissures, which had formed during the Ice Age um, and were aligned precisely on the uh, solstice, like Stonehenge. So the avenue, the processional avenue that leads into Stonehenge is aligned on the solstice, but it's also aligned on these cracks in the soil underneath. And you wouldn't have been able to see those cracks when Stonehenge was built, because they had been buried under layers of soil accumulating. So they would have been known about shortly after the Ice Age, from about 6000 BC. And that's one of the reasons why the site became famous religiously. So that, I think, is, is, is one of the most fascinating things, this idea. Again, it goes back to this, this really long perception of time. Of, of yeah. this, you know, as you say, Stonehenge then has a really long backstory. Uh, it requires, it behoves people to have understood that and respected it and known that you know, there, there was some sort of history there. Mm. Um, sort of wrapping up a bit, because we, we've chatted for a little while now, you, you talked about Stonehenge a bit. Um, Stonehenge is, as you say, probably the most famous prehistoric site um, in, in Britain, though maybe some of those places in Orkney would would, uh, would have something to say about it as well. I, I just wonder, uh, it's certainly the most visited, I think, is you know, one of English heritage's most popular visitor attractions and most iconic um, uh, prehistoric sites now for people. So, so are we saying that Stonehenge and the Stonehenge environs, because archaeology has shown that it was, you know, it was much more than just the stone circle, it was important, the whole landscape around it. Mm. Um, was it a super important place in prehistory uh, and were other places as well that similarly important? I mean, was the Orkney Neolithic complex um, a comparator to Stonehenge in terms of, of, of importance? Um, what, 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 what do we know about that? Uh, the short answer is uh, <clears throat> we strongly suspect that Stonehenge and Orkney were, um, if not the significant Stone Age uh, Neolithic religious sites. Um, but I, I think in some respects, it's rather missing the point because where was the wealth coming from that allowed places like Stonehenge to be built? Because it's Salisbury Plain is not naturally very rich. You know, it's not, I mean, compared to the landscapes where I work in the Fens, um, 
you know, the, we don't have stones, so we can't have um, stone henges, but we have huge timbers, um, and you know, the the soil is as fertile as anywhere in Europe, um, and the Thames Valley is immensely fertile. Um, lo- huge areas of lowland England um, had landscapes, um, so-called ritual landscapes, so, you know, barrows and henges and other ritual sites uh, that compare very well with uh, Stonehenge. Um, and they've they've completely gone. So I think that's why I'm slightly hesitating, because we don't know uh, whether some of the timber henge monuments were could not have been as elaborate and uh, you know special as Stonehenge, and of course they, they would have been closer to the centres of population, which Stonehenge never was. So yes, I do think Stonehenge is an extraordinary place, but um, you know, a little old sea henge is just you could tuck it in one of the stones probably of the of Stonehenge but in some ways for me uh, it, it does it for me better I mean we we've probably learned more about prehistory from a site like Seahenge than even oh, well, perhaps I'm going to be a bit careful about saying this but I mean what other site in the world in prehistory can you make a reasonable estimate of the number of people it took to build it at Seahenge, there were 51 axes used, as we know this from the cutting edges of their blades. So that tells us that the team erecting Seahenge could probably have been about 200 people, if you allow for partners and whatever. And just after we'd finished digging at Seahenge, I was driving home and I had to pause in the village because there was a funeral and uh, the road was blocked because you know the, the hearse was having to reverse into this into the church and i looked across the churchyard and i counted the number of people in the churchyard waiting for the hearse to arrive and there were about 200 and i suddenly thought ah <laughs> there's a direct link to prehistory it gives you some idea of the scale of the ceremonies involved, and really how things haven't changed that much. Okay, uh, one last thing. We've, we've covered quite a lot of ground, um, yeah. and, and hopefully it's been illuminating for our listeners. But I wonder, is there one sort of final takeaway that you'd like our listeners to podcast, and indeed readers of your book, to come away with in terms of understanding prehistoric people and the way they thought about things because it, it, when you talk about Stonehenge in the book you as you rightly said it earlier on you warn against making patronizing assumptions about mm. um prehistoric societies and their presumed simplicity um what, what would you like us to sort of understand about prehistory that perhaps is not well understood that they were exactly like us they had a different way of looking at the world but their attitudes to their mother, their father, their children, their families would have been, you know, the same. If you could, I sometimes think if I could go back and spend a week with a Bronze Age family living in a Bronze Age house, uh, and assuming I could speak the Bronze Age language, I don't think it would be that different at all from going to visit friends nowadays. So I, I, what I'm trying to say is that they were like us. They are. They were us. Um, we mustn't think of them as being different. Um, and th- that that's what I think is terrible about attitudes to to history and to the to the distant past today. You know, it's a series of events that go back in X, Y, and Z, but they were people. And 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 we must remember that they they experience life just as we do. I'm I'm really feeling this coming out of lockdown. You know, we're starting to rediscover the modern world. And prehistoric people would have had this sort of experience too. There would have been diseases. You know, 
coming out of the Black Death. What was that like? You know, I, I don't think our lives are that different. And uh, I think we must look at the past with far more respect and learn from it. And I certainly think politically we could learn a lot from the past. That was Francis Pryor. His latest book, Scenes from Prehistoric Life, From the Ice Age to the Coming of the Romans, is out now published by Head of Seuss. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us again tomorrow when Helen Carr will be speaking about the medieval power broker, John of Gaunt. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.